Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the month of November, we are honoring Indigenous Heritage Month. Each week, members of our church family will be sharing stories that acknowledge and celebrate Indigenous heritage from their lived experiences to the world at large. Bridgetown family, uh, I just wanted to start today's podcast off with acknowledgement of the land that we are on. Um, So what we now call Portland, Oregon and Multnomah County are the traditional lands of the Coolits, Multnomah, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Wasco, Malala, and Watlala lands of the Chinook and many other nations of the Big River, also known as the Columbia. The land we occupy as a nation, as a city, and as a church was taken unjustly. Um, And so... um, As we move into our podcast today, I also just wanted to um, just give you a little warning that we'll be talking about some more sensitive topics. Um, So if you have any trauma, especially around the area of um, sexual abuse, I would just caution you as you listen. Hey guys, I'm Kylie, and I have the honor of introducing my dear friend and roommate, Katya. She will be sharing about her experience as an Indigenous woman, or First Nations as they say in Canada, which she will get into later. Um, Katya, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, I'm Katya, and I'm a biracial immigrant from Canada. Uh, my family is from the Scuppa tribe in the interior of British Columbia. We're considered Coast Salish people. Uh, Something that's kind of interesting about our family culture, being Indigenous, or as Kylie mentioned, we go by First Nations in Canada, is that it's really important to introduce your family anytime that you say, like, who I am or why I'm here. So in that sort of sense, I would always introduce myself by mentioning uh, my my mother and my grandmother. So my mother's name is Colleen Warrico. My grandma's name is Sylvie Beauvard, and my great-grandmother is Rose Beauvard-Williams. And we're descended from the medicine women of our tribe, as well as the chief of our tribe, uh, Chief Sisko, Yale Pass. This is important for us to recognize because we want to be honoring those who came before us in everything that we do. And our people are settled around the Fraser River Uh, near Lytton, British Columbia. So that's kind of a little bit about my background. My full name is actually Katerina Bright Moon Warrico. Um, I have two first names, and my indigenous first name is Bright Moon. So that's a little bit about me, and I immigrated from Canada in 2018, and I made my way to Portland and started attending Bridgetown, and now I'm part of the Racial Justice Committee. I serve on the Communication Subcommittee. Wow, thank you for sharing that beautiful introduction. I feel like, yeah, just the history of your ancestors and um, your culture, I feel like that's such a rich thing that you just shared with us. So thank you so much for, um, yeah, your vulnerability and sharing your part of your family story with us in that way. Yeah, of course. Um, And you you mentioned that you're biracial. And so I was just Mm -hmm. curious, what are some tensions you've experienced there or some assumptions that people have made about your ethnicity? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'm half Ukrainian. I'm also First Nations. And definitely for those of you who know me, uh, I'm very white passing, but with a twist, I say. So um, 
I think that on the outside, I read very Ukrainian. And so sometimes people do act surprised when they find out that I'm also Indigenous. And not only am I Indigenous, but I am a full status member of my tribe. And they're even more shocked to learn that I am the great-granddaughter of the chief of our tribe and that the the land is actually named after my family. The, la- the traditional land is Cisco, and that's named after Cisco Yelpass, the chief of our tribe. So assumptions that people have made about me over the course of my life is that anyone who knows me and is in community with me has never questioned me, but it's always people from the outside. And it's interestingly, it never comes from indigenous people. It only comes from white people. Um, and I think that that also speaks back to just decades of white people being the controller of like our narrative of what does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be indigenous? What does that look like? What's the correct way to look indigenous? What's the wrong way? Um, So assumptions that people have made about me over my life is that I'm not native enough, or sometimes the reverse of that is that I'm too native. And that's come out in some like really strange ways, uh, specifically in like higher education. That's when I've really kind of hit that a lot. I find that BIPOC communities are super welcoming and accepting and it's typically white communities that have, and I think it comes from curiosity. I want to be, I want to believe that people are just, uh, they just like lack understanding or the experience. So they don't know how that could be possible. Um, and the reason that I'm personally biracial is actually like a really, uh, how do I put this? It's complex. Um, there was a time when it wasn't safe to be indigenous. And so uh, in Canada, there's something called residential schools that is a part of our history that we're really not proud of by any means. Residential schools were a place where at one time indigenous children were taken from their families by force when they were like three or four and not returned to their families until they were adults, which would have been at the age of 18. So the purpose of these schools, um, they were run by like nuns and priests was that they wanted to teach children how to become civilized. And they believed that indigenous culture uh, was dirty and wrong and anti-Christian. And again, complex, right? (laughs) That's not an easy thing to say. These children didn't speak English at the time. They only spoke their traditional languages and they were ripped from their families, which are, um, the kids didn't understand. They didn't understand why they were being taken. And so, that's a brief history and like what kids experienced in these schools ranged from um, just a lot of a physical abuse, emotional abuse, but beyond that spiritual abuse, of course. Um, and then in many cases, sexual abuse. And that's something that the church didn't want to acknowledge for a long time, which caused so much pain, intergenerational pain. Um, and the, how children dealt with this outside of those schools was that, um, especially for female children, if any of them, unfortunately, were assaulted, um, they would be held responsible for it, even though they were children. So my family's story about like why we are biracial is complicated simply because I descend from somebody who had that experience. They had to run away from the school uh, for their life, (laughs) and they had to marry someone who was white Um, to regain a new ethnicity that was white. And at that time, the government could reassign 
your race slash ethnicity. And they could tell you, okay, you're white now because you married someone white. And so being white was safe. And that also meant that their children never had to go back to those types of schools. So, you know, a couple generations later, you have people who believe that it's not safe to be indigenous and that they've learned from their own personal experiences or the experiences of their friends, which is that if I marry someone white, it's safer than being indigenous. And so you have a lot of biracial children in the community now. And people who are outside of our community don't know those stories. They don't understand the significance of racism and just like how people are biracial now. Um, it's something now, though, that I celebrate in the way that, like, um, I celebrate being biracial. I'm really proud to also be Ukrainian, but it's been complicated. It's been it's been hard to heal generational trauma in our family because of that. Wow! Thank you so much for just being willing and open about um, just that part of your family's story. I feel like. Yeah, that's a lot of generational pain and trauma to carry. Mm-hmm. And just a sad reality that that is how Indigenous people have been treated, especially by people who are a part of the church or claim to be part of the church. Um, yeah, so I'm curious, as as a woman of faith, how have you reconciled those different parts of you, the part of you that— believes in the Jesus that these abusive people claim to believe in, but also the part of you that is indigenous? Like, how is your, I know that your family is also Christian. So how, how is your, how have you and how have your family kind of reconciled those two realities? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would start by just kind of giving a quick little backstory on my family of like when I entered the picture. When I grew up, I didn't know anything differently. We live off reservation now. So I have a really unique experience that's one of a lot of privilege of not necessarily having to be faced with the reality of multi-generational trauma every day. We just went and visited (laughs) on all these like core holidays and also for big events, right? Um, But we're really plugged into the First Nations community in our new home on Vancouver Island. That's where I grew up. And it's interesting when you can like witness someone else's trauma, but you, but it's like, you're not your family's trauma. So you separate that. And as a little kid, I didn't really understand what was happening. And of course, something that I think a lot of people who've experienced multi-generational trauma can say is that there's all these like gaps in memories of like what people choose to share, what they choose not to share, what they choose to forget. And so as a little kid, you just kind of never question those gaps. Um, So I'll say that for the longest time, now being an adult and kind of looking backwards, what I found out through my mom is that my mom and grandma were ashamed about being Native for most of my adolescent life. And it was only until I was about the age of 10 that uh, my mom, because I think of her faith, found a new type of joy and reconciliation with the Lord that she wanted to invite my grandmother into. And my mom started bringing us to all of these traditional ceremonies. And in Canada, um, indigenous like things are really a part of the school system. So it's like, it's very normal, I guess, to go to like a native dinner, like a celebration dinner to like 
honor your elders. And it happens like every single season and all this stuff. So my mom started bringing us to that and then bringing my grandma. And then we started doing all of these traditional ceremonies. Indigenous people are really warm, family-oriented people. And so every time that there's something to celebrate, they all come together. And so I started seeing my mom and my grandma become like a renewed sense of pride in being indigenous, which was really special. And then as I got older, the pieces started kind of coming together a little bit more. I also found out like we are the only uh, Christian family in our tribe right now. That's changed over the years, but um, my mom started giving more language as I was getting older to like, my joy is found in the Lord and like (laughs) healing has been brought from the Lord. And she really emphasized that we can be those lights to the people around us, especially and like in our tribe, in our tribal family, other people who are experiencing deep pain, we can be the source of deep healing. Um, And yeah, so learning about who caused my family's trauma was really challenging for me. I think that growing up Protestant, there was like a separation of like, that was Catholics, that was this. That's not right. It's not true. It wasn't the Catholics. It was these people, these people who are power hungry and wanted to enforce something. Um, It was their choice to do these things to those children. It wasn't God. I think knowing that and like growing up in a family that knew who God was, knew his character, I didn't blame God for what had happened. But I definitely, you know, I definitely looked to those people and I thought, what could possess someone to harm a child that way, you know? So it's been really interesting being one of the only Christian families in our tribe currently because we also have benefited from so much privilege not having grown up, uh, like spent our adolescent years only on the reservation. We're one of also the only families that have had access to higher education Something that's been really important for our family is to go back and share what we've learned, which is also, by the way, an indigenous belief is that whatever you learn outside of the tribe, you bring back to the tribe. Um, and so we've bought, we've brought our faith. We've been telling people how we pray for them, how we care about them. We've been showing, you know, the the sort of result of practices, which is to be generous, to be community orientated. And um, we've also just shared the knowledge that we've learned from higher education. We've come back and shared that with our community. And it's really beautiful to see healing just happen in really small ways, not only just from us, but we, we can pinpoint how we specifically have impacted our tribe in a healthy way. Wow, that is such a powerful story of your mom, like owning her faith and allowing God to heal her in that way and then passing that along to you, um, just like that breaking of uh, like generational pain or just like generational healing taking place. That's, that's incredible. Um, And just even your own work in that, um, just realizing, oh, that wasn't God. That was people who were misusing God and misusing their authority and then just being able to like kind of reconcile that on your end that's 
that takes a lot of maturity. And I think that that's um, such a beautiful journey you've been on. So thank you so much for for sharing that with us. Um, I'm curious, uh, how how has your family been a part of some of the like reparative work that Canada has done? I know you mentioned that it's like normal in the school system to um, have like indigenous meals and like celebrations. And um, I know that they've done some pretty intentional work around that. Um, and then how is, how has your family been able to be a part of that as well? Yeah. So, um, the Canadian school system, of course, it's like a work in progress. So it's not to say that, like, it's perfect. I think I need to start there. But I need to say that I definitely had a very unique experience compared to my American friends, who I understand, like, there is no reconciliation that's happening in the school system or just in federal-level leadership. So comparatively, what my experience has been growing up is that within the school system, but also outside of the school system, just in like a social context, truth and reconciliation is a big part of step one of essentially reconciling with Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, truth and reconciliation is largely about listening. It's deeply uncomfortable, I'll just say that, because we're acknowledging the realities of what has happened to people, especially after we have maybe for generations say, well, that didn't happen or it didn't happen like that. It wasn't that bad. Um, truth and reconciliation doesn't have an end point either. That's the other thing that makes people uncomfortable. It's like, okay, for how long do we have to do this? Um, so how did that play out in my childhood and my life? So truth and reconciliation starts with allowing residential school survivors to share their stories and so the Canadian government kind of created these uh, listening sessions, and this kind of played out in many different ways, but people would en masse like share their stories and everyone would listen. And they would sometimes be brutal, like a little bit graphic, because we needed to have that documented. And I think that orally sharing our stories of truth and reconciliation is so powerful for Indigenous people because we are an oral culture. That's why we share the lineage of who's in our family because we need to uh, recount the record, as it were. And that's just what we do. So being able to orally share your story is so important for Indigenous people, and to be able to truthfully say what has happened um, breaks chains. And I think that that's biblical, being able to name sin. Um, and Kylie and I have talked about this a lot recently, actually, that it's biblical to name sin, and it's, um, it's important to have times where we listen and we grieve, especially, uh, you know, me listening to another person's story, even though, fine, we're both Indigenous, that's not my story. Their story is unique to them, and I can grieve for them. I can sit with them, and I can talk to God about how I feel. I can lament with them and for them and, and name the atrocities to God say, God, like, this is how I'm feeling. I am angry. I am disappointed. I'm confused. I'm really sick. I think I'm going to throw up. Like, I've felt all of those things during listening sessions. And it had also, I, I don't know, but I can only speak to my experience that I believe that God unblocks something in my memory as well during a listening session that I didn't even know. And I think that this was part of my healing story. So one time I can specifically name, um, important I think I share is that I was in university and 
our class was dismissed to go to a listening session. And when we went there, it turned out that it was like a distant cousin in my family, <laughs> like an older person that I didn't really know, but I just like, I knew he existed. And he shared his experience with residential school, and I didn't even know that he went to one. And I didn't even, at that point, I hadn't connected the dots that my own family had gone through this because I knew it existed, but it just, it didn't become real until I was physically there. And I think that's why truth and reconciliation is important because when you learn about something objectively, it doesn't feel tangible. It doesn't hit the core heart center of our bodies. And I think that that's something that God was doing with me is helping me unblock in my memory the fact that my grandma had actually said bits and pieces of that this was true for our family, but I didn't realize like to what extent. And I didn't realize that when she was talking objectively, she actually was talking about herself and her own story and my great-grandmother's story. Because people will do that sometimes. They'll like leave out key details and kids won't question that. So truth and reconciliation was a part of our healing because I acknowledged the sin. I pushed towards it. I asked my family more questions when I left that it became something that I needed to have answers for. And then my body told me the next truth, which was that you are deeply like undone by this. And who are you going to turn to? And that's when I turned to God and I asked God, would you help me with these complex emotions? Because I don't know what to do. And I can't believe this happened. And I like, and I was also able to empathize with other people who are sharing their stories where I was like, these people need healing and I don't know what to do for them because that's not my family. That's not my life. And that's when I started learning what it means to grieve for others, even when that's not your own story and that's not your own experience. I've heard this a lot from my like white friends. They're like, I don't know what to do. How do I empathize with you? Because I do, but like, I don't know tangibly what to do. And what I needed is someone to hold my hand and to give me a hug and also to make space for me to not be well. <laughs> um, and then everything that comes after, which is like loving me well, <laughs> loving my community well and showing up again and again to truth and reconciliation because it's hard. Sometimes it feels like the only people who want to hear the stories are people who've gone through it. And not looking away is important because then it leads to the next step, which is like we all equally share in healing. And so for our kind of circling back, I know I kind of went off tangent there, but like this experience of truth and reconciliation, my sister, my mom, my dad, all of our family, we all did truth and reconciliation events. So we started realizing like it wasn't just up to mom to heal the family. It was up to all of us. And my friends started asking me really good questions and also being like, I'm not going to make jokes about Native people who drink anymore. Like, that seems like a really small thing. But what you don't know is that people handle intergenerational trauma with substance abuse. Period. <laughs> people caring, people like wanting to celebrate with us, celebrate what's beautiful about Indigenous culture. My grandma coming, me coming, Tasha coming, my sister my dad, who's fully Ukrainian, but like, man, that man shows up to everything. That's healing. And seeing everybody come together and just praise God that he can do that. He can break the worst chains. He can, he can like, 
he can overcome the trauma of sexual abuse. He can overcome a lack of communication with our family. Do you know what I mean? Like, he can do that. And that, for me, is like, what a cool testimony to say that, like, it had to start, though, with something that made me sick, which was just listening to other stories. So, yeah. Wow, that's that's beautiful. That's incredible that Canada was able to like recognize that um, that listening and and truth and reconciliation work is healing. Like it, I agree with you that that's the principles behind that are deeply biblical. Like naming the offense so mm-hmm. that there can be forgiveness and restoration. Um, I feel like that's deeply the heart of Jesus, and that's so cool the ways that you and your family have gotten to step into those spaces and have your community step into that on, like, a a bigger level than just, like, what we think of, like, interpersonal healing or forgiveness or reconciliation, but, like, on this this Mm -hmm. bigger scale. Yeah, Yeah, and I'll also say, like, it also helps because with truth and reconciliation, people will tell you what's painful— and what they actually need help with instead of you just guessing. And that's also important because like as an ally or as a friend or as a family member, you may not know fully how someone has been hurt and what actually they need to heal. And oftentimes people will just tell you if you just give them a chance to tell like tell their story. Mm. Wow, so it really is as simple as just beginning with listening, which... Mm-hmm. It's so hard for for us to do as a society. Even just like taking the time to slow down and listen, I feel like yeah. can be a challenge to ask that of people. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm in, I'm inspired by hearing your story just to to make more space to listen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I feel like what you're sharing is like really important, and I feel like it's stuff that we can learn from as a church family at Bridgetown. Um, So I'm curious, what has your experience kind of looked like at Bridgetown? Um, And you've been here for several years. So how have you seen seen that change over the years? And what are your hopes moving forward for our church family with truth and reconciliation and racial healing and um, just becoming, yeah, like a united family? I love Bridgetown a lot. (laughs) It's funny. When I showed up here, I don't know anyone in the state. So coming here was honestly a fluke. And now looking back, um, I love this place. It's family. Um, My experience at Bridgetown has been positive. And it's also been really challenging and really awe-inspiring, too. I think recently when I see how we've been boldly and faithfully stepping towards justice and there's like a willingness in prayer to be honest to God. Like we don't know everything, but we want to learn from many voices and many people and we want to do more. And it's beautiful. Something that really impacted me recently was just hearing the word spoken in multiple languages on stage. It, it Again, it's, I, it's weird that I feel like there's a connection between truth and reconciliation there of being like, reconciled with the fact that the word is spoken in many languages and many tongues. And it encouraged me and motivated me to want my mom to keep learning our traditional language so that she can be the first person to read the word 
in our language, which is almost dead and only spoken by like 20 people now. And that's like my prayer for her. So if you're listening, please pray for my mom that she would become very, very good at this language so she could do that at Bridgetown. Um, I think my hope is also that we never become apathetic or tired. And I mean, I say that as in like, there is beauty in routine. Shout out to Kelly, who reminded me that last night at Community, of just reminding me that there is passion can be born out of routine and dedication. And I think that um, at Bridgetown, we are people that are committed to showing up. And beyond showing up, I like want to see us step into things that are new. And we are doing that. And I'm really excited. So I'm excited for um, the initiatives that we're doing that are about racial healing and truth and reconciliation. And I think part of truth and reconciliation starts here at Bridgetown with allowing more voices to kind of share their story um, giving opportunities for people to share where the needs are, if that makes sense. And I think we're doing that. <laughs> it's really exciting. I'm excited for all of the initiatives we're doing um, because I know that they're going to be like transformative for our whole community. I, I already see that as evidence of like the things that we have been doing. Yeah, that's that's so true. I, I love everything that you just shared. Like, um, yeah, it's been really beautiful to watch our church family step into to more of this justice work and um, prayer. And yeah, as we've we've heard on Sundays, those go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. Um, and and you mentioned that. Sorry, going back to something you said earlier, you mentioned that. Yeah, when when you make space for this type of work, for like listening and reconciliation, that people. Uh, will kind of share what they need. Uh, and so I'm just curious on your end, what are what are some opportunities or some ways that we can um, step into more healing that we can show up for uh, people who are on the mar- on the margins or have um, you know a different culture or ethnicity than us and and even just for you specifically? In my anger that i f- I immediately feel when I'm like someone doesn't get it. The Spirit has taught me how to have grace for like, this is this is why it's important. These conversations are why we're doing this. We will get to healing and we will get to healing together because I need everyone involved in healing, not just you. Even though we are critical and very important people in part of healing, to truly have healing as a as like a house of all nations. We need to heal together. And so I've found that the Spirit has personally spoken into my heart to just douse me with um, mercy and invitation to ask really good questions and to help partner with other people in learning and understanding, Um, specifically on like an emotional side to also prepare others. And whether that's other BIPOC people or white people, um, I have definitely slowed down to open that gateway of invitation. Like, let's all step into this together. Um, So for our community specifically, no matter who you are, whether you happen to be BIPOC or not, or biracial, I hope that the invitation is that you will be attuned enough to the spirit to let the spirit lead you because the spirit is going to tell you something that culture will not. 
And culture says many things. Culture says, let's ignore this conversation. Culture also says, it's not your responsibility to do this with someone. It's also, it says many things. But the spirit will always say something unexpected. And I have always found that the Lord has invited me towards healing for myself and others. And he directs me. And so, yeah, um, step one, get attuned to the spirit. Step two, be willing to go where he leads. Wow, I feel like you just gave a sermon that was also <laughs> the answer to like every question I've ever had about anything. So thank you. Thanks, Kylie. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I I feel like I learned so much, even though like we're friends and we've been having these conversations, even just like uh, yeah, getting to hear everything laid out like you did today, I feel like I've learned so much and it's just, it's been an honor that you would share because yeah, your your story and your family's story is very um, vulnerable, but yeah, I'm so grateful that, that you were just willing to to offer that to our community. And so thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, much yeah. love to you, Bridgetown family. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Indigenous heritage, Oregon's racist past, and Bridgetown's vision for the future, visit bridgetown.church justice.